This week I read about a uh, 75-year study that Harvard University concluded recently. 75 years, by the way, is a long time. Uh, A 75-year study covering thousands and thousands of men over multiple generations, and the study was asking, what is it that makes a man happy? Sorry, women, the study's just for men. I guess in 75 more years, we'll have a a study for what makes women happy. Um, But the study asked, what makes men happy? What is it that contributes most to a satisfying life? And uh, the number one quantifiable factor that this study turned up was one's quality of relationships. One's quality of relationships was the key factor over this generation-wide survey asking what contributes to a life that's going to be satisfying. And I believe that that study accords with what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that you really cannot live a full life, a wise life, a satisfying life without relationships. And specifically this morning, without friends, without friendships. That's the habits we're going to think about cultivating today. We're in the third of this four-part mini-series we're using to begin the year. We're calling it The Power of Habit. And we're looking at four keystone habits. Remember, a keystone habit is a habit that when you're practicing it faithfully, it overflows into multiple areas of your life and sparks real change and transformation. And and we've seen that when believers in Jesus are practicing these keystone habits faithfully, um, we experience the change the gospel offers us. Remember, we're learning how to float on the river that is God's love. Uh, So what does it look like for us to experience God's grace, for us to experience um, and be able to rest in the gospel? Uh, Well, that looks like practicing these habits and seeing the gospel filtered into our lives through them. So we looked at prayer two weeks ago, crying out to God. Last week, we looked at Sabbath, stopping and resting. And today we look at the habit of friendship. One of our core values at Christ Church is loving community. We have seven things we want to be known for. That's one of them. I hope that if you call our church home or if you're new to the church, you find loving community here. Now, every church on the planet talks about loving community and rightly so. It's a broad biblical word that can have all kinds of various shades of meaning. But I want you to know this morning that when I think about loving community here at Christ Church, a really large part of what I mean and of what our leaders mean is that we want you to have friends. We want you to have good friends here. That's really important to us. So what does the Bible have to say about friendship? And how can we develop the habit of being a good friend and of having good friends? I'm persuaded in my own life, God has blessed me with many good friends throughout my life. And I know it's one of the main instruments that the Spirit uses to transform us. So that's what we're going to think about together for a couple of minutes. We're going to look at the need for friendship, the way of friendship, and the gospel as friendship. The need, the way, and of course, the gospel. So first, the need for friendship. You Bible scholars will probably know this. What is the first thing that God says is not good in the story of the Bible? Anybody know? To be alone. This is before sin enters the world. It is not good for man to be alone. 
loneliness. Loneliness is a problem. Loneliness is something God looks at and says, this is not a good thing. And the reason is because we were, as humans, made for relationships. We're made in God's image. Every single one of us, no matter our age, no matter the color of our skin, no matter the language we speak. And because we're made in, a God, in the image of God, we're made for relationships. Because God himself is inherently relational. God is three. At the same time that he is one, God exists eternally in this mutual friendship with himself. In Father, Son, and Spirit. So as his image bearers, it makes sense that we would also need relationships. That we would also need friendships. Back when I was on Facebook, I'm no longer on Facebook, by God's grace. That's the fourth habit, by the way. And uh, when I was on Facebook, Facebook told me that I had about 1,300 friends. Impressive, right? I know. Yeah. And uh, I'm not on Facebook anymore. But of course, as we all know, the vast majority of those people I'm not close with. Some of them I barely knew or maybe had met once. And, and almost none of them are people that I speak with on a weekly basis. You know, isn't it ironic that we're more connected to each other in this day and age than ever before in the history of the world? We live in the spider web of the Internet, in the spider web of social media, but we're lonelier than we've ever been. There are multiple, multiple studies being done regularly, and all of them are drawing the same conclusion. We're facing an epidemic other than coronavirus. It's called loneliness. We're facing a loneliness epidemic in the United States, in the Western world. The Harvard study I referenced earlier concludes that the number of friends per person is lower now than it has ever been in the history of America. 0.9 people. The average person has 0.9 friends. And, and, and I often hear people speak, and I've been guilty of speaking in this way, of how my best friend is someone that I see once a year, or that I talk to twice a year, or that we hang out once every six months. Listen. If your best friend is someone you see once a year, I'm just, that's just really sad. I don't mean, I mean that seriously. That is, that is a testament, a testimony to the problem that we're facing. It speaks to the state of our friendships. We all struggle with friendship. There's multiple reasons why we might struggle with friendship, why we might, might not actually have the friendships we crave. Some of us would probably say we have a lot of friends. But these friendships can often manifest themselves in ways that are less than what the Bible calls us to. For example, we have digital friendships. Now, digital friendships are certainly not all bad. And this is certainly related to how old you are, the number of digital friendships you have or don't have. But digital friendships are, are inherently limited because it's easy for us to hide, Right? in digital relationships. Uh, they allow us to only put forward our best selves, our most well-put-together selves, our most edited screen versions of ourselves. That's one of our issues, digital friendships. We've tried to digitize relationship. Another issue is that we have transactional friendships, as Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Real friends, real friends see each other as long-term companions. And they give to each other the rare gift of long-term loyalty. But transactional friendships are relationships in which we, maybe not even consciously, treat people as a means to an end. 
We connect with someone or relate to someone because of what they can do for us. That's one of the ways in which we live and treat people as commodities rather than as human beings. So we've got digitized friendships, we've got transactional friendships, and then, frankly, a lot of us have been burned in friendships, haven't we? That's what Proverbs 16.28 is about, which Christy read for us. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A word to you young people, to you children, be careful who you choose as friends. If your friend is regularly gossiping about other people, whispering about other people, making fun of other people, I promise, I guarantee you as your pastor and as your friend that one day soon, you're going to be the one being whispered about. We've experienced that the longer we live. Most of us know what that feels like when a friend gossips about us or betrays us. And it's possible, certainly, to just give up, to just give up on friendships, period, when this has occurred, perhaps repeatedly in our lives. So there's all kinds of reasons we deal with loneliness and broken friendships. You might be dealing with that today. You might want friends, but not be able to find any. But the bottom line for all of us is that we have a need We have a need that so often in life isn't being met for friends, for real relationships, for companions in life. And it's true that developing the habit of friendship is a necessary component to your own spiritual growth. It just is. No man and no woman is an island. You cannot live this life by yourself. We were meant to live together, not to go it alone, because we're made in the image of a communal God. That's what all of these Proverbs are about. We need friends who will stick with us, who know us and are known by us. So the need for friendship, I hope, is clear. How then can we make friends? Very practically, how do we pursue friendships like this? Let's look at that. The way. The way of friendship. I love these Proverbs. There's many other Proverbs, by the way, that speak so well about friendship. What is it that makes a great friend? That'd be a great question for your community groups to discuss when you talk about this habit. What is it that makes a great friend? And what should you be doing? And what should you be looking for to develop the habit of being a friend? Maybe one of the key things we can say this morning is that if you want to have good friends, you should be this kind of friend. If you want to have good friends, you should be this kind of friend. I I want to tell you three things, three components that make up a great friend. Three, Three things that apply to the way of friendship, okay? The first is commonality. Commonality. Uh, That's part of what Proverbs 17, 17 is getting at. That verse says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That verse really is saying that in some ways... Friendships are even closer relationships than blood relationships, than sibling relationships. Now, we hope our siblings will always love us, but the Proverbs say a friend loves at all times. Why is that true? Well, one of the reasons that friendships can be even closer than sibling relationships is because friendships always begin, always. They always begin not because you're related to someone, but because you have something in common. You have something in common with someone else. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it like this. 
Friendship does not so much ask, do you love me? But do you see the same truth? Now, this should not surprise you if you've been around for a while, but the person who, in my opinion, has written about this by far better than anyone outside the Bible is our friend C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis writes this, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. In other words, friends bond over something they both love or enjoy and do together. Now, I bet if you think about in your life the friendships you've had, I bet that it's almost always true for almost all of us that our friendships began because we both enjoyed doing something together. My friends growing up, we liked to play the same sports. We listened to the same music. We had common experiences. My friends now, a lot of them are tied to me because of my faith, and some of them are pastors, and then there's still sports, and there's still music, and there's still books. So, so recently, a number of years ago, actually, Marianne and I, went to hang out with some people uh, that live in the city. They don't go to Christ Church, but they've become our friends. And this guy and I became friends because we found out that we both love the same types of music. And I have a little bit of a quirky, weird taste in music. I like like indie rock bands that are kind of arcane and, and weird. And uh, this guy liked the exact same kind of music that I did. And we just, I know you've experienced this. We just immediately hit it off. Because we found we had this in common. And we had all kinds of things to talk about. Have you heard this album? Did you listen to this song? This artist is amazing. And then we went to their homes. And uh, we were talking about music. And, and then I looked at this guy's bookshelf. And uh, man, it was love at first sight. When I saw his bookshelf, he had all kinds of books that I also have on my bookshelf. And not just like the Bible and C.S. Lewis, but like weird fantasy books that are all like a thousand pages long. The sort of stuff that I thought... I'm the only one that's read this book. It was the immediate moment that C.S. Lewis talks about. What? You too? And this guy's now my buddy. He's my friend. We spent time together because we have commonality. Listen to what Lewis writes next. He contrasts eros, romantic love, with friendship love. He says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends are side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. So practically, practically, I think the scriptures are teaching, if you want to make friends, it's totally good to pursue common interests you have with other people. I know this is how it works with men, right? If you sat me and another man who had just met down together in a coffee shop and said, okay, be friends, 50% chance at best, and it's going to be a little weird, a little awkward, but you know, if we like wrestled each other in the coffee shop, then we'd immediately be a comfort. Or if we went on a race, or if we went hunting together, or if we played basketball together, men especially need to do something together. And from that friendship arises. So if you want friends, find people in your life that you have common interests with, that you enjoy the same things with, and spend time with them doing those things. That's one of, one of the reasons God made friendship. Let's, listen one more time to C.S. Lewis. He says, he's speaking about this idea of commonality. This is why those people who simply, quote, want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. 
When the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing, and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, that would be weird. It must be a British thing from the 1940s. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. This is what it means to have a friend who is loyal, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It begins, it begins with loving something together. One habit you can begin to develop, if you don't already do this in your life, is carve out time to spend time with people who share common interests with you and do that with them. That's a good thing. You're loving and obeying Jesus when you do that. You're bringing glory to God and you're actually filling your own soul. The second aspect of friendship is vulnerability. Okay? The first is commonality. The second is vulnerability. Proverbs 18.24. How can you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother? Now, common interests are the beginning. The beginning. But friendships involve more. Real friendships involve vulnerability. Now, how does that work? Well, it's just the way God made us. Think about the example I gave with my friend James, who we developed common interest around multiple things and have spent a good bit of time together. When we do something like that, when we build up companionship and mutual admiration and affection for a friend, the way God has designed our hearts is that our hearts want to reach out to them. Our hearts want to be known by them. We want to rely on them and have them rely on us. We, we want to hear from them. Our hearts sort of long to trust them. Don't you know what that feels like? So to get great friendship, you need common interest and then vulnerability. And vulnerability is expressed mainly through words. It's expressed through words. Words are what bring vulnerability. Conversation is the basis of a good, vulnerable friendship because that's where we become known by each other. Now, men do the common interest thing well, right? Women do the words thing well. Men can learn from women in this area. Think about your best friendships and how this works. Another one of my best friends is my college roommate. We spent three years together in college. His name's Rob. And um, we spent so many nights staying up late into the night. We'd play video games. We'd go play basketball. But then what would we do? We would talk. We'd share words. We would get to know each other. He learned about me. And we got to a point where there was nothing Rob didn't know about me. And there was nothing I didn't know about Rob. We were able to be honest and open and, and bear, bear with one another because we had built up the vulnerability and trust required to have a good friendship. So what would that look like for you? As you're spending time with people, as you're thinking about the people in your life you want to hang out with, I think a great, just very practical, tangible habit is for you to think about forging a way in your life to spend an hour a week talking with a friend. It can be over coffee. It can be over lunch. It could be on the phone. But if you devote time speaking regularly, maybe to one or two guys or gals in your life, the friendship will blossom. So the way of friendship involves commonality. It involves vulnerability. That's how you get to where you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And third, the third way of friendship is time. 
Commonality plus vulnerability plus time equals a great friend. In fact, friendship really is just vulnerability spread across time. To get to the friendship that the Proverbs speak about and and that all of us need doesn't just magically happen. I mean, I did magically hit it off with James, but that's, that's becoming a buddy with someone. And it's a good thing to have buddies. To become a friend requires more. It requires exposure, vulnerability, and it requires time. Because a friend knows you. And you know them. A true friend, there are no secrets with. A true friend is someone that you can be completely open with. And that embodies the gospel, as we'll see in a minute. But these vulnerable friendships that embody the gospel, they don't happen just because we wish we had them. They happen because they're cultivated over time. They grow because we, we, we arrange the structure of our lives with habits that allow these kinds of relationships to flourish. Now, my prayer is that all of us, our best friends, if we're married, will be our spouse. Uh, your, your wife or your husband should be the person that you are most vulnerable, spend the most time, and have a lot of things in common with. But it's in God's good interest that we have other relationships with people of the same gender that we're doing these things together with. Let me just maybe give you a a valuable and, and I think somewhat radical thought. Have you ever wondered why we arrange our geography and our schedules in such a way that makes putting consistent time into friendships really, really hard? You ever wonder that? Why do we arrange our, where we live and the things we do in such a way that we don't have any time for friends. Instead, what if, what if we all considered choosing where we lived, choosing where we laid down roots, not primarily based on our career, not primarily based on weather, not primarily based on interests, but based on relationships. What if we committed to not taking a job that pays slightly more, but staying in one place over time and living life together. One reason friendships are hard for so many of us here is because we're such a transient people. That's true in the United States for sure, but it's especially true, right, in San Antonio. And I know that if you're in the military, you can't say, hey, you know what, I am going to stay here actually uh, because I've made some really good friends. So find someone else to PCS. I get it. I know you can't do that. But what you can do is think about where you're going to plant down roots when you get out. And and one of the joys we've seen of being here for seven and a half years now is some people decide to come back because this was a place where they were able to grow roots and develop good friendships. And that shouldn't be the only factor, but it should be a factor that we take seriously. And often we don't consider that at all when we think about where we're going to actually live. William Wilberforce, 19th century British uh, statesman and Christian who was largely responsible for the ending of the slave trade in the UK, was a part of what was called the Clapham sect. That sounds like a weird cult. It's not. The Clapham sect was a group of five families who were friends. And they were called the Clapham sect because they all made a very conscious decision to live in the same neighborhood of London for the entirety of their lives. Uh, The neighborhood was called Clapham. 
And these five families had many opportunities to go many other places. These five families were all very gifted people. Of course, William Wilberforce was one of those. But they made the conscious choice to settle in one place together because they loved each other. And they wanted to live near each other and be friends. And and it's amazing to read about how God used that group of people really to change the world. Listen to what author Stephen Garber writes. We do not flourish as human beings when we know no one and no one knows us. We do not flourish as human beings when we belong to no place and no place cares about us. When we have no sense of relationship to people or place, we have no sense of responsibility to people or place. If we are to have honest lives, we will have to incarnate who we are and what we believe with those people and in those places. Now, the Lord has formed all of our lives very differently. But I do think we can take these three general principles about the way of friendship, commonality, vulnerability, and time, and think about how we might, by the Spirit's help, apply them to our lives that God might give us the gift, the gift of good friends. Let's look at that third. The gospel is friendship. God has already given us the gift of a good friend. Our our habits of friendship, actually, are empowered by the strength of the gospel. I mean, think about it. Think about it. What is a friend, if not someone, who knows how broken we are and yet sticks around and loves us anyway? And what is the gospel? (laughs) If not having a Savior, Jesus, who knows just how broken we are and sticks around to love us anyway, Jesus makes us his friends in the gospel. That's what he says in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And then he says to his disciples, and really to us, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Think about that. If you run the love of Jesus for us through that way of friendship grid, you'll see that these marks of friendship can typify the very richness of the gospel itself. I mean, Jesus came to have commonality with us. No other religion comes close to this. In fact, every other religion, every other way of viewing God says that God is far, God is distant, God is other. But the gospel says, no, Jesus became exactly like us in every single way. He moved into the neighborhood except without sin. Jesus came into our world as Emmanuel. He is the God who is near. Jesus made himself vulnerable to us. What's more vulnerable Then crying in the garden as you're waiting to die and asking your friends to pray for you. What's more vulnerable than literally being exposed and laid bare on a cross? What's more vulnerable than than Jesus opening to us his perfect soul as his friends and asking that we might pray for him? That's what he did with his disciples. And, And we can be vulnerable with him too knowing that he loves us and knows us and hears us. And then Jesus also, amazingly, spends time with us. 
He's present with us when we pray. He sent his spirit to be with us in a way so that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Jesus is the greatest friend we can have. Jesus is the fulfillment of Proverbs 18.24. He is the friend, capital F, who sticks closer than a brother. And if you can get that worked into your spiritual muscles, into the fiber of who you are in Christ, it empowers you to go out and then begin to live like a friend with others. And amazingly, that habit begins to cultivate sweet, sweet growth in your life. I've been listening to a song recently um, where the lady simply sings this refrain, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. If Jesus is that kind of friend to us, and he is, he faithfully holds us all the way, then in that power, by faith, we can be that kind of friends to others. It's a habit that will filter gospel life into our worlds. Let's pursue it. Pray with me.